This is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and uh, I'm here at Swamp Up. It's a city conference, I guess, uh, put on by JFrog. And I'm here talking to uh, Fernando Babadopoulos. I didn't get anywhere close, did I? It was a bit close. It's Babadopoulos, a Greek surname. Uh-huh. I'm a Brazilian with Greek surname, Portuguese passport, if that makes any sense. It's not yeah, easy for cool. me to cross borders. That sounds like fun. Yeah. So yeah, so we're just going to talk for a minute about your experience with DevOps and JFrog and what you do and all that stuff. You're going to be speaking here later on. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood. I've been talking to a whole bunch of people that want to update their resume and find a better job. And I figure, well, why not just share my resume? So you, if you go to topendevs.com slash resume, enter your name and email address, then you'll get a copy of the resume that I use, that I've used through freelancing, through m- most of my career, as I've kind of refined it and tweaked it to get me the jobs that I want. Uh, like I said, topendevs.com slash resume will get you that. And uh, you can just kind of use the formatting. It comes in Word and Pages formats, and you can just fill it in from there. Well, what did you talk about? I'm going to talk about a plugin that we develop in your company to fix a developer problem, open issues based on problems that X-Ray found on our base code. I gotcha. And yeah, you told me a little bit earlier that this plugin, I guess, pulls the issues from X-Ray, which is JFrog security dealio, and it, it sticks it into whatever you're tracking your issues in, right? Yeah, basically we have a bunch of Java software that we wrote on mm-hmm. on our company. It's a amazing project, right? And it has a lot of issues and vulnerabilities that developers put in it, right? So we use X-Ray to scan this code base and get the vulnerability mm-hmm. from X-Ray, and the plugins open automatically all the issues inside our issue tracking. Okay. And the developer don't need to deal with it. That sounds really nice as a developer. (laughs) That sounds really, really nice. So what kinds of issues do you typically see come across your radar with with this kind of setup? Uh, We get all kind of vulnerability problems because developers usually add some dependence to the code base Mm -hmm. without knowing what the dependency is and what the version they are using. That's why we need a way to scan this code base in a time fashion. Right. No, that, that makes total sense. And yeah, just to give a little bit of background for folks, so X-Ray, yeah, it scans the code base for vulnerabilities. And yeah, I, I do the same thing, right, with my code. I'm typically writing Ruby, but, you know, pull something off of Ruby Gems. I'm not looking at it, right? It, it, it fills the gap that I need, and that's, that's, that's why I'm grabbing it, so... Yeah, developers just want to write the code and solve yeah. problems. They, they, don't need, they don't want to deal with vulnerability problems and right. scan them. That's why we need an automatic way to deal with this problem. No, that makes total sense. So if somebody hooks X-Ray up to their application, or I guess they submit their source code to X-Ray, right? And then X-Ray does the scan. Yeah, what we do and what X-Ray does is we have a Git repository with our source code, and we pull the the code from Git, and we submit this code to X-Ray. We we don't need to submit the entire code. It just gets the dependency from local file system. Mm -hmm. It submits the dependence 
to X-ray servers. Okay. Then X-ray run all the vulnerability scan, and we get the the report back. And based on this report, that we open all the issues inside our issue tracking system. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm a little curious. What, what do the tickets look like that come through? The the tickets? Yeah. We got all kind of them. The last one that we had to deal was the the log4j problem, mm -hmm. because as we have a bunch of code, a distributed code in dependencies, over dependencies. Right. We had lots of log4j versions and we have to fix them. Right. That, that was the, the last one that we got. Yeah, I gotcha. They've been talking a bit about it here. Yeah, we were able to fix it in like a week because of X-ray and then the ability to continue scan our softwares. Right. That helped us. Yeah, that makes sense. As it starts, you know, finding these vulnerabilities, you start fixing them because it doesn't it give you like steps to fix it. It gives you some clues and okay. the version that has the problem fixed. But developer need to get their hands on right to be able to change the dependence without breaking the code. Right. And so then it runs kind of as a continuous integration, and eventually it'll tell you, hey, you don't have any more of this kind of vulnerability. Yeah, that's why we built this plugin. The plugin itself runs inside our CI CD process. Right. So our developers push code to GitHub, mm -hmm. then our CI CD process gets this code. Using the plugin, we right. run all the vulnerability scan, and we can break the deployment based on the, the report. Right. That makes sense. What's the plugin written in? It's called Redmine X-Ray plugin uh -huh. because it, it integrates the scan with Redmine. Okay. It's open source right now. It's uh -huh. on GitHub. Everyone that wants to use our plugin to build another plugin or use it as a template, it's open source. Right. Yeah, I, I love that. I love the approach to having it open source. Well, what do you have to do to install it? If you follow all the instructions that are on GitHub, it, it's just straightforward. You get the code, you compile with Go. You just do Go build, then you copy the, the binary to okay. the JFrog plugin director, and that's it. Oh, okay. That sounds pretty easy. And I mean, how often is it finding vulnerabilities? Because it seems like, you know, if you're not updating your dependencies very often or things like that, you may go a while without getting any. Yeah, it depends on the developer process. On our company, as we write code every day and they are changing the dependencies, we get reports like once a week, mm -hmm. we get a new vulnerability. And even if they don't change the dependencies, they may find a vulnerability right. on an old dependency, and we get the report as well. I got you. So if there's a zero day, they yeah. find it, there's a CVE, it comes through the system, and yeah, then it pops up and says, you've had this the entire time, but now we know about it. Now you have to fix it. Right. Gotcha. How long does it typically take you to tackle any of the issues that come up? Mm, it depends on, on the, the issue. But normally, when we have a zero-day vulnerability, we get all of our developers to fix it because it may impact on our business. But usually, it takes a week to 10 days to fix the problem. Depends on how big it is. Right. So the other thing that I'm curious to know is, is this plugin uh, maintained by your development team, or was this something that your DevOps folks came up with? Or? Uh, nowadays, it's maintained by our company. Uh, uh -huh. We are the only one that are using it. Right. But as it is open source, 
anyone who wants to collaborate and maintain can can join the team. So is your is your entire presentation about this plugin, or is there more yeah. to it? Yeah, it's a live demo session, so you can. Well, the session is about this plugin, but we want to demo how easy it is to build another plugin to solve company problems. So we are using our our problem to to, to represent the session, but it is about uh, the process that we use to write a new plugin to fix our problem. That makes sense. So what what does the process look like to build a plugin like this? The first step is to clone a template. Uh-huh. That was the process that we did to write our plugin. Makes sense. But this is not the best process uh-huh. because the, the template that JFrog has is just a hello world template. Right. It's not a real world mm-hmm. example. Right. So we made this plugin to show to everyone how easy it is to write a plugin. Uh-huh. So the, the easiest way to write a new plugin is to clone our plugin okay. and that's then, real world. Yeah, it's yeah. a real world application. Yeah. Yeah. It connects with X-Ray, with JFlog mm-hmm. platform, it exchanges tokens, has all the, the artifacts that you need right. inside the code base. So this is the best way to start a new plugin. Just mm-hmm. clone our plugin and then you go. Makes sense. So I'm assuming you're making calls through you know a third party API to Redmine, right? So it's yeah. Hey, here's the API key, or however you authenticate. On the JFrog side with X-Ray, how do you get the data from from that? Do you set up a socket, or is a third-party API there too? Or how uh, JFrog has an embedded API. You can communicate with their servers to push the code and get the report back. Uh-huh. It's super easy. Okay. And Redmine also has a full API right. to open all the issues and everything. Okay, so do you just pull in some library for JFrog or? To use JFrog API, you just need to add a dependence to the Go project, uh-huh. and then you can extend the, the API as you okay. need. It's kind of straightforward. And you've mentioned this is written in Go. Do the plugins all have to be written in Go, or do they support other languages, do you know? Uh, the plugin by itself must be written in Go to communicate with the JFrog CLI. Okay. But as soon as you have the your API communicating with Go, you can use any kind of language you want. I got you. So you can pass it through to a node process yeah. or something. But but the plugin itself must right. be written in Go. Right. So at the end of the day, what you wind up doing is you have a, it feels like a script, but it's a compiled binary in Go. It's a compiled binary. Right. And using Go, you can compile to uh-huh. any platform you want. You can right. use Windows, Linux, Mac OS, and everything. Right. And so then it connects through the JFrog CLI libraries yeah. to get the data that it needs. And then it connects to Redmine and sticks all the information in there. Yep. That, and then that's it. you get an alert that says, <laughs> hey, you got a problem. Yeah, because the, the issue tracking is the platform that our developers right. use oh, to yeah. do all the tasks. So they are used to it. And they, they didn't want to deal with another dashboard just for, for, for vulnerability scanning. So we merged all together. Yeah, the company I'm contracted to is using Azure DevOps for that. And I don't even like looking into it, right? Let alone <laughs> yeah. anything extra. So that means. You also said that it can fail the build. So how, how do you work that in? Is that just another CLI function? Or? We failed the build using Jenkins as oh, okay. a CI CD. 
So depending on the, the level of the vulnerability, we fail the build. I got you. So then is there some kind of third-party connector to Jenkins as well? Or does Jenkins call out to X-Ray and just wait for it? To well, we use respond. Jenkins to call our the JFrog CLI, mm -hmm. use a embedded uh, okay. functionality inside Jenkins. So basically, we, we added the, the JFrog CLI uh, in the middle of our CI CD process. I got you. So it runs all your tests, it does all the other stuff you would expect the CI to do. And then it says, okay, now go run the JFrog stuff. And yeah. Build it or whatever, whatever artifact you need. It does its thing, it says, hey, you've got these security vulnerabilities. It logs the, the issues in Redmine. And then it comes back and says, this one's medium. So. So okay, you can go on, but I gotcha. If we have like if it's severe, high, it's, yeah, we break the the process. Very cool. So what's next? We want to extend the the plugin to other parts of JFrog platform. They just released right now an advanced feature. Right to scan Docker images and so on. So we are looking forward to extend the, the CLI plugin to scan our images, our Docker images for all those vulnerabilities. I gotcha. Yeah, that's cool. So if people want to find it, how do they find it? The plugin? The plugin, yeah. You can search for JFrog Redmine inside GitHub. I'm using my own account right now. So right. It's quite easy to find it. Okay, cool. And yeah, I don't know that I have any other questions. I am pretty excited to see where all of this goes for people and you know what, what it can provide. So yeah, thanks for putting it together. Thanks for sitting down and talking to me for a minute. Thank you. All right. Uh, if people want to follow up with you or follow you online or anything like that, where do they find you? You can find me on Twitter. It's Babadopoulos, my surname, B-A-B-A-D-O-P-U-L-O-S. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, Fernando. Thank you. Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood. I'm excited because I wanted to let you know about this thing that I pulled together that I had just, I've been dying to have this for years and I never felt like I could. And then I just realized that there's no reason why I can't. So um, I'm putting together a book club and we're going to read development focused books, career books, you know, uh, technical books, whatever. The first book that we're going to do is going to be Clean Architecture by Uncle Bob Martin. If you're not familiar with Clean Code or some of the other stuff that Bob has done, check that out. I've also talked to him on the Clean Coders podcast, which is on Top End Devs. But uh, yeah, we're going to get on. He's going to show up to some of our meetings. And what I'm thinking is we'll probably have like five or six people uh, part of the conversation along with Bob and I at the same time. And we'll just, uh, so somebody can come on, they can ask their question, and then we'll just ro rotate people through. So we'll we'll mute one person, unmute another person when it's their turn to come on and, and be part of the discussion. So we'll do that for like an hour, hour and a half. And then the other part of it that I'm putting together is just kind of a meet and greet gather area on Gather Town. And so after the the meetup and the call, what we'll do is we'll all go over to Gather Town and you can just log in, walk up to a group and have a conversation. And that way we can all kind of get to know each other and and make friends and, and get to know people across the world. Uh, one thing that I'm finding is that, yeah, the meetups are starting to come back, but a lot of people don't have the opportunity to go to a meetup. And I really want to meet you guys and talk to you. So we're going to put all that together. It'll all be part of that book club. You can go to topendevs.com slash book club to be part of it. And I'm looking forward to seeing you there. The first book club meeting will be in December, the beginning of December. We're starting the first week of December. And 
Um, you'll also be part of the conversation about which book we do next. I have one in mind, but I want to see where everybody's at. So there you go. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood. I'm still here at Swamp Up. I am talking to Elena. <laughs> you got it. And Sergey Egorov. Thank you. I got That's close funny. enough, right? Very close. Thank you. All right. Good deal. Yeah. So you guys work for Atomic Jar, which helps people with their integration testing. For, for the DevOps audience, I expect that some people know what it is and some don't. So do you want to just kind of give a, a real brief introduction to what integration testing is? And then we can talk about why it matters and what the approach is. So first of all, I think like it's important to mention that yes, like both Ellie and I, we are co-founders of Atomic Jar, but the project in question is Test Containers, uh, the integration testing framework for developers that actually precedes the company for six, by six years. So it started in 2015, and it took us some time to realize that there is commercial potential as well. But the focus for today for this conversation is Test Containers, of uh, which I guess some people have heard before. Ellie, if you want to uh, quickly introduce yourself. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, the high-level question of integration testing, right? Where you're trying to integrate multiple components, you're trying to integrate them into a single system. The way we approach the problem space, specifically, is we allow individual developers to be able to test their individual components with all of their dependencies. We allow those developers to run to, to do the, this testing by running real dependencies on their local machine. So when they're developing their software, when they're developing their component, they're able to find issues with their code much easier and do this with real Kafka, do it with real Postgres, with real dependencies right in their developer machine. What people typically, people typically look at, at, at DevOps and they think about integration as something that happens as a whole system. We actually allow splitting some of that problem and allowing developers to do a lot more of it using test containers on their local machines. All right, so let me just back it up a little bit here. Mm -hmm. So effectively, what we're talking about, we're talking about a, a library or a system that allows people to test the different pieces of their machine. now. I'll admit, most of my time, I'm developer, not DevOps, right? And so, are, are we talking about like uh, microservices or you know other things where you've broken your app into different pieces that way? Mm -hmm. Or when you say a component, is it more just kind of an area of concern within maybe a monolithic application? Yeah, I think we are too used to talking about test containers that we kind of forget to introduce the problem space in the first place right. and how to address it. So maybe I can step back a little and uh, take a higher level view on the problem, but the problem is that like the services, like the software development is evolving. The practices are evolving. Like, we now have like DevOps everywhere, basically. You know, like everyone talks about like DevOps culture and what it means, like DevOps culture. It means shifting things to the left. Like let's empower developers. Let's allow developers do more because they are the creators. Like they create the values that later gets deployed to production. So like if they are the creators, if they are the originators of no, like, the source, why don't we let them control how we deploy, control how we do whatever, including testing? And I believe that while a lot of transformation has been happening in the DevOps world, or like not like DevOps world, but rather you know, like got triggered by the DevOps culture movement, testing did not receive enough love. And I believe testing is a mandatory part of every software development lifecycle. I'm not talking about automated testing, just testing in general. Like you might as well just do manual testing. Like you start the application and you click through the UI. 
Like, why not? That hurts. That really hurts. It does because it's a time thing, right? Like, yeah. And uh, just to give you a little context, so my first, so my first job out of college, I was running a tech support team, and I got promoted to QA. Uh-huh. However, that works, right? <laughs> in other words, there was politics, and I wound up in QA. So, and th- they refused to let us do automated testing, right? So it was clicking the UI, and that's an extremely painful way to test. Like if I'm if I'm working on a feature, yeah, I'll click through to make sure that that one little feature works. Mm-hmm. But that's it, right? The rest of it, I kind of want it to happen on its own. Now, whether that's you know I have a test runner on my machine that says, "Hey, we're going to run through all the tests," you know, in in this suite, or maybe it has some smarts to it and it goes, "This is the stuff that changed, so it should only affect this stuff, so we're only going to run that stuff." But but yeah, you know that that's kind of what we're looking at. So in, in this case, what does uh, test containers do beyond that? Mm-hmm. So actually what you described is what got me into automated testing. I had so bored of doing the same action over and over and over that I decided to automate it. And this is, why, this is how I started looking into automated testing. But when I started, it was all about unit testing. Like developers uh-huh. were writing unit tests and integration tests were something that QA team were doing and you know, like beyond. Yeah, um, well, they're painful too, right? Unit tests are usually pretty used to be painful, yeah. if I may. <laughs> okay. What happened thanks to all this transformation, Docker happened. Like, yep. it's a great abstraction for running things. Like, you know, like people can just like go and run like all this variety of technologies. Mm-hmm. And what, like, why integration testing used to be so painful? Because it was hard to set up all these dependencies, like all these right. environments, dependencies, and what's not. And it's, it was the knowledge of uh, kind of, you know, like the sysadmins, like they knew how mm-hmm. to set up environments. Developers right. did not, but developers wanted to. Like I've been, I've been that developer who wanted to do uh, more testing. Like Eli was well, like at one famous public cloud where... I used to be, yes, in a big <laughs> cloud company. And indeed, like one of the key things is, is, is the ability to, the differentiated the company's ability to automate things, ability to test things in an automated way, mm-hmm. and ability to ship software in a very different way. So when Sergey talks about unit testing, right, and unit testing which used to be, used to be super difficult, right? Yes, it, and the reason it's difficult is because of snowflake environments, there's difficulty to set it up, knowing specifically how to do it, managing this environment, and so on and so forth. What Test Container does is abstracts all of that and removes a lot of that complexity and enables developers to just say, hey, I need, I, I want to test what I'm doing with this component, it will magically appear. Okay. Your test will magically run against yeah. it, and when you're done, it will magically disappear. Right. So I've worked on a couple of projects where we had a Docker Compose file, right? Mm-hmm. And so effectively, we would do a Docker Compose up, and then we would run the tests on one of the containers, and it would hit the stuff on the other containers. Mm-hmm. The downside was was that was also the environment that I did my development in, right? Yep. And so it would it would get hung up on stupid stuff that I had crammed into the database just to see if it would work or break as I expected. And so then I'm running this test, and most of the time it's fine. You know, it's talking to the other mm-hmm. pieces of the app, and every once in a while I've put something really weird in there, and then I've got to go blow away all of my development data, and mm-hmm. now I'm back to square one because I need some of that stuff. Yep. And so, so this alleviates some of that, right? So that's interesting that you mentioned uh, Docker Compose actually, because I think, and that's my personal opinion, but we talk about shift left. Uh-huh. Seeing like let's shift it to the left to developers, but Docker Compose is a good example of shifting 
to the left, the tooling and the approaches that were on the right side of things. Right. And I think this is right. Like actually, shift left movement should start from left to the right. Oh, I like that. Because <laughs> developers know how to write unit tasks. Uh -huh. So we should just make it as easy as unit tasks to write integration tasks. We mm -hmm. shouldn't be moving this like Kubernetes definitions from the right, like from production to developers, because they so, don't understand that. So what you're telling me is that I shouldn't have had to spend hours and hours and hours tweaking my Docker Compose to make everything work. I think that's precisely what I'm saying. Okay. Uh, that's not the knowledge that you should maintain. Right. And uh, that's not reusable knowledge. Like you can copy and paste Docker Compose files from the internet, uh -huh. But then, first of all, you barely understand what's going on. And then right. it's hard to maintain, right? Uh -huh. Like, uh, okay, like images evolve, uh, technologies evolve, your requirements right. evolve, but you only have this like, I know, 100 lines long Docker Compose file on YAML. And developers aren't programming YAML. I mean, it's programmable to some extent, but you know, like developers write code. Mm -hmm. And why unit testing was so well adopted among developers, those who were doing automated testing, because it's the same thing, code. They could just code their tests. Right. But all these other types of testing, they required new set of tooling. Mm -hmm. But test containers and uh, the unique value prop of test containers is that you continue writing code, you continue creating objects, but in place where you would create a mock, you now create a container object. You say new Kafka container, and boom, you have Kafka. You say new Oracle container, you have Oracle. Always the same library, always the same only requirement. You need to have a valid Docker environment so that you can run those containers. Here. Right. And developers can install Docker Desktop. Most of them, yes. <laughs> Although, as seen by our product, sometimes that's, that's not the preferred way, but that's a whole different story. Okay. But the idea here is that let's make it as easy as unit testing uh -huh. to write integration tests, and then developers will love it because they don't need to change their workflows. They don't need to even change their tasks, actually. Just right. they, they can gradually migrate from unit tests to integration tests versus shifting to the left what used mm -hmm. to be on the right side of things. Right. Like developers would not be using Selenium to write integration tests because right. they might not even have a UI. Maybe right. they're developing a REST microservice. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're developing something that reads and writes to Kafka. There, right. there is no UI at all. Or an embedded they, system. Yeah, they need new set of tooling. Yeah. Gotcha. So, so what what does test containers actually do beyond like set up Kafka, you know, run Oracle, run PostgreSQL? One one of the things that I'm writing right now for my for the contract I'm working is we're writing integrations between two API systems, right? And so, like the one API system, I'm either stuck mocking it, right, because I don't have any control. I'm either stuck mocking it or just dealing with test data out of the system. Mm -hmm. Both of which are kind of painful. But on the other end, it's it's a system that's written by people on a team with within my organization, right? Mm -hmm. And I have access to that source code. Could I use test containers to say, I want one of those? Okay, that's a very good question. Pretty common one, but nevertheless, it's always a great question because it's very appealing when you start developing. Like when you're a small company, mm -hmm. like Greenfield Project, to start everything in integration testing phase. And there is a there's a great oh, we're well beyond that at this point. Okay, gotcha. But there is a great article by Martin Fowler, like a well-known person in the testing space and not only testing, who talks about integration testing. And what is the definition of integration testing? Does it mean that we need to start everything, like broad integration tests? Right. Or maybe we can only set the code under development, like you know, like the service that we are developing. Mm -hmm. And everything else will be surrounded by other direct dependencies, so like Kafka, Oracle, Postgres, uh, MySQL, and what's not, right. and doubles of other services. 
And there is also an optional addition of contract testing, which mm -hmm. is a great counterpart for integration testing, and it plays very well with test containers. But the idea is that instead of starting dependencies, and there are dependencies, dependencies, and so on and so forth, because it can get pretty big. Mm -hmm. uh, like, for example, Netflix, who are well-known adopter of uh, test containers, like. Right. I don't think anyone knows how to start Netflix from scratch. It's right. just too large of a system. Right. And it's too expensive too. Right. Like they don't need ephemeral environments. Uh -huh. They need the bare minimum to start their services so that they can test their service. Right. And there is also a problem of transitive dependencies. Yes, maybe it's a mm -hmm. service that's maintained by your uh, team or right. by you know like your company. But what happens if someone breaks authentication service and mm -hmm. then the whole company is blocked from delivery because authentication <laughs> service is broken, right. not in production, but in development. Right. And now you need to ship a critical bug fix for, I know, user profile service or like I know, uh -huh. movie catalog service. And your tests are failing because of that transitive right. dependency. Maybe just to build on what Sergey just said, if you think about testing and the transitive dependencies that he just mentioned, the bigger your system gets, the more difficult it is to test and the yes. more and the higher probability that your tests would fail. Uh-huh. So the bigger you build your system to be, the slower you become. Right. While the method and the methodology that we are that the, that we are advocating uh -huh. says actually look at each individual component, each individual service and look at all of the dependencies that they have test it independently, have it reproducible, allow each individual team to go the speed that they're going at, at every single point can they say, okay, now I want to do an integration test mm -hmm. and have everything they have and have it reproducible and be able to ship whenever they need to ship. Gotcha. And actually, you know what's funny? All this microservice movement was the idea to decouple services from each other, uh, decouple yeah. their deployment pipelines. And now people just like glue them to each other by starting all of them at once in their integration testing uh -huh. scenario. So they create this bottleneck that is not necessarily required. Yeah. Just so that they can test. Like it's it's literally against the ideology of uh, microservices where you would rather keep the pipelines isolated. <laughs> yeah. But it's even bigger, right? So if you if you think about if you think about about the problem space that you just talked about, maintaining. Like if you're going to test it somewhere, right? If you're going to test the whole end-to-end -end thing somewhere, you need to maintain it. You need to have data. You need like, and the bigger right. it becomes, the more difficult it becomes, and the more time you end up spending maintaining the environment. Right. So, so what do I do then for those those third-party services that aren't, I guess, kind of black boxes I can just stand up? So one of the reasons why I mentioned contract testing is that it actually addresses this question of. How do I ensure that services talk to each other without actually starting uh, starting them? Like mm -hmm. how to check that service, you know, user profile service, when it queries authentication service, that it sends the right payload and that uh, it expects the right result. And contract testing helps with that. It's not required. You might as well just like uh, maintain the compatibility, uh, uh -huh. just like as, as per agreement. And there are also some some static static compiled like options of talking service to service. So one of them is obviously, obviously gRPC. There is also, also Apache Thrift and others. And with emerging popularity of event-driven systems, you probably already have event registry in your infrastructure uh -huh. like, or schema registry, like event schema registry. So we can ensure that the events that are being sent by services and being received by services I gotcha. are all according to the same schema. 
So uh-huh. uh, contract testing is basically schema registry for your REST APIs, for example, or like right. other interactions and beyond that. But that's that's the idea. And by the way, I realized that I didn't answer one of your questions that I think is important. Like what's what's the difference between, you know, like having a Docker Compose file and like uh, what test containers gives with all this like Kafka container, Oracle container and others. Uh-huh. The idea is that similar to how we publish libraries, out there. So for example, for Java, for Node.js and others, uh, which is reusable definitions of something, the same idea applies here. Like you don't need to know how to configure Kafka and like which environment variables to set, which ports to expose and so on and so forth. You just say new Kafka container and you get it. Um, You also specify the version, like which Kafka you want to use because you want it to match your production version. Right. But it gives you reusable definitions as statically defined objects. And then you Mm -hmm. add a dependency Work test containers, uh, module Kafka, and then you say new Kafka container. And there is more because those are usable definitions that are all built on the same abstraction, generic containers that mm-hmm. you can use with any Docker image out there. So it doesn't need to be supported by test containers. But those that are supported, you're also getting additional methods for manipulating the state, for obtaining the state. And for example, in Kafka world, it's not enough to know host and port of where Kafka is running. What uh-huh. you need to know, you need bootstrap servers. Right. And it actually gets very tricky how to configure Kafka for testing, especially on random ports. Mm-hmm. And if you Google Kafka Docker Compose, all the examples you'll find will be using static ports, like fixed ports, right? because uh, that's how Kafka protocol works. And then you run it on CI, and one service run Kafka, second service run Kafka, and they conflict. And then like right. one of the tests will fail. Or even locally, like you switch between projects and you have those conflicts. Test containers always runs everything on random ports. And it also abstracts away and uh, encapsulates this knowledge how to start Kafka with the best possible configuration inside that object definition. And then it exposes methods, for example, Kafka container dot get bootstrap servers mm-hmm. and you need for your configuration bootstrap servers and your after complete gives you this uh, information versus you having to read documentation of Kafka Docker image of Docker Compose of what's not how to use Kafka in Docker. Have you ever wished that you had a group of people that were just as passionate about writing code as you are? I know I did. I did that for most of my career. I'd go to the meetups. I'd try and create other opportunities. And it was just really hard, right? The meetups, I got some of that, but they were only like once or twice a month. And it was just really hard to find that group of people that I connected with and and really wanted to, you know, talk about code a lot, right? I mean, I love writing code. I think it's the best. And so I've decided to create this community and create it a worldwide community that we can all jump in and do it. So we're going to have two workshops every week. One of those or two of those every month are going to be Q&A calls, right, where you can get on, you can ask me or me and another expert questions. Uh, The rest of them are going to be focused on different aspects of career or programming or things like that, right? So it'll go anywhere from like deployments and containers all the way up to managing your 401k and negotiating your benefits package. Well, we'll cover all of it, okay? And then we're also going to have meetups every month for your particular technology area. So we have shows about JavaScript, React, Angular, Vue, and so on. We're going to have meetups for all of those things. I'm going to revive the freelancer show. We'll have one about that, right? So you can get started freelancing or continue freelancing if that's where you're at. And I'm working on finding authors who can actually do weekly video tutorials on something for 10 minutes that's related, again, to those technology areas so that you can stay current, keep growing. So if you're interested, go to topendevs.com slash sign up 
and you can get in right now for $39. When we're done, that price is going to go up to $75. And the $39 price gets you access to two calls per week. The the full price at $150, which is going to be $75 over the next few weeks, that price is going to get you access to all of the calls and all of the tutorials and everything else that we put out from Top End Devs along with member pricing for our remote conferences that are coming up next year. So go check it out, topendevs.com slash sign up. Right. I guess the question that I have on that, because I like the idea of, yeah, I don't have to test, did I hit the right API on this custom app, the blah, 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 right? It's, did it put it into a queuing system? Did it put it into a database? Did it put it right where I expected it to go? And then I can run the test to check it, to pull it out, to process the event away or whatever, mm-hmm. so that at the end of the day, I've got, I've got oh yeah, the, I got what I expected. Some of that sometimes requires some setup, right? You're, mm-hmm. You need a, a queue name or you need a, a yes. database name or something like that. So with test containers, is, a way of, is there a way of setting that up or do you just use reasonable defaults in your tests or how does that work? Of course, uh, there are methods to configure so, like th- this, uh, like these parameters. So, like, let's say you start Postgres, and you want to say that username should be, I know, top end devs, right? And then the database is podcast, right? So you're saying with username top end devs, with database name podcast, with password ABC one two three. I hope it's not your production password, but let's <laughs> consider that that's the password you. You can cut it uh, in post, right? <laughs> I can change it to ABC1234. Okay, good, good. <laughs> but of course, it's, uh, it's very flexible. And actually, what's really cool is that you configure those as environment variables uh-huh. uh, uh, on Docker image most of the time. Sometimes right. you also need to call APIs, but once again, it's all... Inclusive. I've had to do that in Docker Compose, so that makes sense. Pardon? I've had to do that in the Docker Compose. Yeah. yeah. So, but with test containers, you don't need to know which environment variable is it. Right. You just say like with database name. Okay. And then takes, uh, test containers will take care of that. Very cool. Thank you. So, I mean, what, what's the history on this? Like, was this a problem that you saw that, that somebody decided they need to fix? I, I don't know if you guys wrote it or somebody else wrote it. Or was this something that came out of somewhere else and you kind of adopted it as open source? Or So maybe I can start and then Eli can share how he stumbled upon uh, test containers and atomic chart. But test containers started as an open source project. I mean, it is open source project right. started by Richard Norse, uh, who was back then working at Deloitte. Okay. And now it's Sky Scanner. And he solved it to solve his own pain and problem. And, uh, you know, like running with a CD of Oracle database configured the right way so that mm-hmm. every developer can install it on their machines isn't as efficient as just, uh, you know, like sharing these definitions in code and letting it start and stop automatically. And back then, it wasn't that widely adopted as compared to today, but uh-huh. it was gaining some early traction. And uh, back then, I was working on Zero Turnaround, uh, DevTools company uh, from Estonia, company behind Jarable. And we had our own test containers as uh, inner source project. And then I discovered test containers um, on GitHub. And I was like, oh, wow, that's actually like, it's doing like literally the same things that we are doing. But as a big fan of open source, I was like, let's just start contributing to that project. And uh, it was seven years ago. Uh, and ever since then, basically, um, I was involved into the test containers project. 
And uh, two years ago, after I decided to quit VMware after I acquired Pivotal, where both Ellie and I were working at, I, I did an awesome that, okay, I don't know where I'm going. And one of our active users reached out to me and said, hey, have, like, would you consider starting company for test containers? Because like, I see the value and like, you have commercial ideas. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I happen to be an angel investor. And the rest is history, basically. But we started the company with Richard, um, and he was my original co-founder before Ellie. Um, and uh, he, um, like, he he's still uh, with us in the community, but he just decided to return to uh, Skyscanner. But Ellie can share how he uh, how yeah. he uh, learned about Atomic Jar and test containers. And so I, I started I started I started noticing test containers with many of our customers, and I started seeing the community pool. And I started mm-hmm. the more I learned, the more I realized that what test containers allowed people to do is it allowed them to decouple, it allowed them to go and deliver software much faster. Right. Right. So while we talk about integration testing and we talk about testing, the end result of it was that what I started to see is I started to see patterns of what I've observed in some of the largest internet and cloud companies of how they develop software, mm-hmm. i.e. this idea that the team could become completely independent and decoupled right. and ship software at the speed that they could go at. Right. So when I started looking at this and I'm like, okay, this framework allows you to do that, but not only does it allow you to do that, it allows you to do that without adopting a whole new platform. Right. Right. You can just adopt it inside of your existing code base, inside of your existing, and you can start writing tests. Mm-hmm. You can start. You can start iterating. You're able. As your developers can start uh, becoming more effective. I started looking at this, and in the light bulb clicked for me. And that's that's when I started talking to Sergey. That's when I started learning more. And this is like, to me, it was a no-brainer to come join Sergey right. in this vision, to help to help organizations, to help uh, developers, yet change the way they they do software development and do it more effectively. Gotcha. So I guess the other question I have, we've got about five minutes left in our half hour. So what does Atomic Jar do that Test Containers doesn't do? Because, I mean, you, you've been really modest and talked about this open source tool that does stuff that, frankly, I'm sitting here thinking, uh, I need this like on all my projects. But yeah, you know, what, what does Atomic Jar offer beyond the, sort of the open source offering? So we started with a clear vision what we don't want to do. Like we don't want to sell software. We don't want to sell Test Containers Pro. We don't want to sell services. At least not yet. Like uh, maybe in the future when there will be demand, uh, maybe we'll start doing that. But we really started as a SaaS company. And Mm -hmm. we believe there is a huge opportunity for us to be a SaaS company because we talk about Docker here. Like we continue mentioning Docker, Docker, Docker. And you say that like developers know how to install Docker, right? But it's day one experience, like installing Docker. And maybe it's easy, like next, 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 done. Yeah, but day two experience with Docker might not yeah. be as uh, now, now you're into Docker files and stuff. Yeah, yeah, and also we are privileged here. Like if you're telling me that you can install Docker in your environment, on your local environment, on your CI environment, because that's where test containers plays uh, plays a role, like local uh, mm-hmm. on your desktop, and later you run the same test on CI. Uh, if you're telling me that you can have this consistent experience between local and CI, and you're not having issues you are very privileged here uh, right. in a good sense. Like, you know, like all developers mm-hmm. should be, but uh, we're not there yet. And last but not least, if we talk about running test containers and Docker on the same machine, we're basically limited by the resources of that machine. Right. And that's actually a huge difference because 
running tests, like running unit tests, consumes just a little bit of CPU and like it's super fast, right? But then running continuous on the same machine as part of that uh, test unit is a major impact on your performance, on your responsiveness of right. your machine. And on the security of the machine, which is very important for CI environments. And what Test Containers Cloud, our product does, we basically decouple where you run your tests and where containers are running, and we provide a managed environment for running the very same test containers open source tests to connect to. So like you're not submitting your tests to our cloud. You're installing a simple user space agent that makes test containers talk to our managed environment that we start on demand and then we passivate if you're not using it, so you're not paying for right. the use if you're not using it. And it allows not only to run test containers anywhere, and next week, next week will be at KubeCon, and our mm -hmm. demo is literally Raspberry Pi running four parallel threads of test containers-based tests much faster than you could get it on local machine right. with Docker. But that is Raspberry Pi versus mm -hmm. beefy laptop. And I already hinted at that, but a huge value add is that it's no longer one-on-one -on -one relationship between where tests are running and where Docker is running. You can, you can have it as one to many. Right. And then you can run more tests in parallel and get there faster because of the scalability of the cloud mm -hmm. that is much bigger than uh, what you get on your local machine, bounded uh, by your local machine resources. Cool. Very cool. I guess the last question I have, because you've mentioned CI/CD a few times, and I don't know why I, I didn't think of this before, but if I want to go run this like on Jenkins or mm -hmm. maybe a commercial setup like CircleCI or something, mm -hmm. how do I do that? As long as you have Docker there, you're good. And uh, most of modern modern CIs, they offer yeah. Docker out of the box. So it works out of the box on GitHub Actions. Uh, okay. On Jenkins, uh, since we, like there is no managed Jenkins, I mean, there, there are some, but like uh, you talk about custom installations. But then as long as you have Docker on your machine, mm -hmm. you're good to go. And even with uh, some modern technologies like Tekton, for example, you can run Docker as a sidecar to your, to your pod that runs right. your CI job. And why Docker? Like, why not something like Kubernetes? Because Kubernetes and Kubernetes API is very focused on production environments. Right. And you're not getting the same law of control over containers that is needed for integration testing for it to be efficient. Like, we're not just creating mm -hmm. ephemeral environments. We're just creating individual containers, and we allow, uh, I don't know, putting net, like connecting them into a network, or maybe introducing chaos testing. Like we can literally uh -huh. say this container should drop half of the packets that go to that container right. from test containers API, which is kind of cool, I think. Uh, so we don't need to adopt mm -hmm. a new tool for chaos testing. And as long as you have Docker, you're good to go. That's a, the only requirement locally and on CI. And luckily nowadays, it's very easy to get Docker uh, in most places. But as I said, like, where it's harder or where it's desired to get more uh, than just right. like what's available locally, then there are other managed options too for test containers. Cool. Well, I guess the last question is, if people want to learn more, where do they find you? They can easily find us at uh, testcontainers.org for the open source project and testcontainers.cloud for the commercial offering. And of course, atomicjar.com as a common place for everything that we are doing because we start with test containers, but there will be more and there will be coming like there will be more things coming from us because we are here to make developers happy and productive. And you know, like we want to allow them to do their thing because we are developers as well. And uh, we believe that testing is a huge, huge part of what they're doing. 
those who are doing testing, including manual testing, by the way, mm -hmm. which is also supported by test containers through framework integrations in Quarkus, in Micronaut, in uh, to be added to Spring Boot, and other languages as well. We're not just talking about Java. But there is so much more we can do, but we need to start small with something, and we believe test containers is a good first step. Cool. Well, thanks for talking to me for half hour. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Charles. Thank you for having us. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.